0: The text this morning for the sermon is from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 and verses 16 through 18. So a few words of introduction before we begin. Uh, This is one of the last letters it seems that Paul was able to write. Paul is in prison while he uh, is writing this. He's in prison for proclaiming the gospel. He has appealed to be sent to the emperor and so to the emperor he went um, he's sending the letter is to Timothy, who is in Ephesus at the time. The purpose of the letter was to counter false teaching, as many of his letters are, but it also has these personal notes at the end, and these personal notes are the subject today. There's two things I want you to keep in mind, and we'll get develop this a little bit more later. One is that Roman prisons were terrible places, very dangerous. And the second that, Paul in this letter and in other letters very often is addressing a deep divide between Jews and Gentiles in the early church. The early church was made up of both Jews and Gentiles living together in community but in an uneasy fashion. And all sorts of problems come as a result of the cultural differences between these groups. And Paul is often addressing that deep divide and trying to keep the church together. I want to explain just a little bit about how different these groups were because this is related to what we're going to be looking at a little bit later is that Jews and Gentiles not only had different languages but these languages were from different language families. The Semitic language is from the Afro-Asiatic language family. Greek which most of the Gentiles spoke is from the Indo-European language family. Metaphors, expressions, idioms Function very differently in different language families. It's it's so not only was the language different, kind of the langu- the worldview that's sort of inspired by the, the language that you use was drastically different. So communication was a huge problem between Greeks and Gentiles, or Jews and Gentiles, pardon me. They had different customs of, of food and dress and their organization about civic life. Uh, they had different views about very central things in terms of family and procreation and, and how you dress and whether you dance or not, things like that. I mean, it was really big, there was a lot of very uh, more reserved or less reserved. Um, and these are groups that were taught from an early age to distrust each other. And to avoid each other at all costs so that you don't become unclean by mixing with them. So you can think about what a challenge it was to keep these subgroups together within the church. We're going to come back to that later. It's an important thing. So let's go to our reading now, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 and 16-18. through 18. Let's see here. Alright. It reads like this, verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing." At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes today, I'm, I want to give you some sort of highlights. If, if you're not taking notes, don't worry. But if you are taking notes, then there's three things that I want you to write down eventually. Uh, three things that I want to pull out of this text, and then we're going to pull them all together with a few sort of applications for us. So the, the first one is about Paul. Did you notice that he said there's waiting for me a crown of righteousness? Um, And some people have thought this is uncharacteristic of Paul to write in this way because he's often down on himself about his own sinfulness. He's not one to trumpet his own righteousness very often. So they think it's a little out of character for him. But he's at the end of his life and he's looking back on his life and seeing that yes, indeed, he has been faithful to the call that God has placed on his life. And he has faith that righteousness is his reward because of his faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So he's not boasting about himself, he's really boasting about what God is going to give him because he simply said yes to God. And one thing I want us to to, um, put that in juxtaposition with, and this is a verse that we're often quoting here, is where he says, this saying is worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus died for sinners, Of whom I am the worst. This is what Paul says. So how do we square that? I am the worst of sinners, and yet there's waiting for me a crown of righteousness on the other side of death. Well, his usefulness to God is not dependent on his being a sinless person. Does that make sense? I'm going to kind of go back, and you might want to write that part down too. But the the first is that Paul is the chief of sinners but also he's awaiting a crown of righteousness. That's what I want you to write down for the first point. Paul is the chief of sinners, but he's also awaiting a crown of righteousness. And his usefulness to God, God set him to all sorts of useful things, not because he wasn't a sinner, but because exactly because he was a broken person and owned up to his own brokenness. He says, it's in my weakness that God's strength is manifested. This is a really powerful way we should understand ourselves, too, is you can't say, oh, I can't be useful to God because I'm such a sinner. No, (laughs) your sin is a problem, absolutely. But your usefulness to God, that's God's work in you, and your forgiveness comes from God, and he can continue to use you, and I think he can use broken people really well, right? Paul says it this way, we have a treasure in jars of clay, right? We have this amazing thing, like the gospel, inside, this this gospel of peace and righteousness and reconciliation with God, but yet it's surrounded by something common and even broken. But there it is, it's inside there. So I'm this broken vessel, but I'm carrying within me the gospel of Jesus Christ, so, he's not boasting, he's not self promoting, it's just a sober evaluation of his life of service to God and also this sure trust that God will forgive even the chief of sinners. So, that's the first point. Paul's the chief of sinners, but he's also awaiting a crown of righteousness. The second point, if you want to write this down, Paul is uniquely equipped to keep Christianity together. Paul is uniquely equipped to keep Christianity together in the first century. And why do I say this? This is related to to who he is and why he's here. He speaks Greek. In fact, uh, you look at how he writes Greek. It's clear he's a native speaker of Greek. His Greek, and, and he's familiar with Greek philosophy because the language he uses is just as erudite and just as scholarly as Plato or Aristotle or or any of the rest. He's quite the scholar. He knows Greek up and down, inside out. The problem with his Greek is that it's so complex and so meandering that you can have a sentence that's about eight verses long and very people who are faithful in translating the Bible do the same thing in English. They're like, well, Paul meant it as one giant sentence with several subordinate clauses. We're going to string them all together just like he did. And I like that because it captures the complexity of his thought, the, the way he communicates. So he's conversant in Greek, but he's also conversant in Hellenic culture with Greek culture itself. And there's even a smidgen of that here as we're reading. Take a look at verse seven and eight. He's drawing on some imagery from the Greek games, not just the Olympic games, but the Greek. The Greeks had a tradition of athleticism that the Jews did not, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't, you know. And here's one reason why. Did you know the word gymnasium is from the Greek word gymnos, which means naked. The Greeks competed in their contests naked. Only men were allowed to compete. And um, I went to a football game together. I don't want to imagine. You know, I'm glad they had not just pads on to protect themselves, but pants. You know, this is good. This is great. Um, And that shows the difference between these cultures. The Greeks would go to the games and watch men run around and wrestle each other naked. And, And the Jews would look at that and go, I'm not going near that. I'm not, that's, that's not for us. That's not what we grew up with. Nakedness in Judaism was a sign of shame. In fact, Isaiah went naked for three years as a warning to Israel to get their attention about their sin. That's how far he took it. And they're like, Isaiah, hmm, enough. So that's, that's, that just shows the, the cultural differences but also that Paul is conversant in them so he talks about i have fought the good fight like the wrestling match i have run the race these are events at the games and then he says i have the crown of righteousness that word crown there is not like the metal crown that the king puts on that's actually that word is the laurels the laurel crown that was given to the winner of the race. And it was, it was a simple crown. It would die in time. It was just made out of leaves and stems. But it was beautiful. This is the thing that he's won. He's, he's drawing on Greek culture all the time. Now, why is he doing this? Because he's uniquely equipped to bring together Judaism and Greek culture in the early church. So he knew He knew Greek games, he knew Greek culture, he knew Greek ways of thinking. And so, I'm going to find, my printer did something funny today, so I have to find page 4, which is upside down. There it is. Good. So, he can communicate with Greek speakers who are everywhere, but at the same time, he is as Jewish as a person could be. This is the genius of God choosing Paul for this special work. You have somebody who knows Greek culture and language and everything amazingly well, but you also have someone who you could not find a more Jewish person than Paul. He says this about himself. I'm a Pharisee. I'm descended from Pharisees. I know the law inside and out. He's conversant in both worlds, okay? And he's able in his writing and in his conduct and in his ministry to keep this church together, which is always trying to pull itself apart along ethnic lines, cultural lines, linguistic lines. Do you know what a challenge it was to keep the church the church way back, way back when? Can you imagine if our church, and this is thankfully not the case as far as I can tell, is if, what if half of our church was communists and the other half was libertarians? You know, I I can't think, I mean, there's probably further extremes on the, what, you know, how would you keep them all together? Well, the gospel, right? There's something bigger than your own stuff going on here. And that's what Paul had to say. Your ethnicity, your language, your culture, that's all great. God can give you that. You can work in that, move through that. You can evangelize through that. But that's not the biggest thing about you. The biggest thing about you is that you've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And that you have a mission together that's far bigger than any one small thing that you think. Um, Paul could do that, and you know what's interesting? If you read through, in, read in between the lines in Scripture, this is how people attacked Paul, other Christians. He got friendly fire in the back, because he was sometimes accused of being too friendly with the Gentiles, right? Sometimes too friendly with the Jews. And there were people who were always pushing the wedges between there. And Paul has the greatest scorn for those people. And they deserve it. Because they're pushing their wedges, trying to puff themselves up. And Paul says, what are we here for? It's about the gospel. It's not about dividing us. It's about Jesus Christ. And so that Jesus Jesus in the center is what unites us. And so... That's one aspect of this passage which I think is really amazing, and it all fits together as we'll see, is that Paul is uniquely equipped to bring together the early Christian church. By the way, the church, that problem in the church continued for quite a while, and eventually it seems that just about all the Jews who were going to become Christians finally became Christians, and they they, be, they had children that were raised in the church. And so this problem became less of a problem later on. But it was an early problem. And I think, this is theory, without Paul or somebody like him, an exceptional person like him, I'm not sure the church would have survived. But God in his wisdom, God in his providence, set somebody just like that at just the right time to bring the, the early church along. And that's great. Thank thank God for that. So the third thing I want to say, and I hope you want to write it down, you can, is that Paul is always fulfilling what Jesus foretold about him. Paul is always fulfilling what Jesus foretold about him. If you read Acts chapter 9, this is Jesus talking. Jesus says, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. Paul has it on his heart to suffer from the, from the moment he met Jesus, the suffering began. The moment, the instant. The instant he met Jesus, he, he couldn't see. He was blind, right? And from then on, he went out into the wilderness, which probably wasn't that great, although it could have been good for some things. And then he came right back into the thick of it, and all the people who remembered him as this on-fire person who was out to get rid of all the Christians found that he had converted he probably lost a lot of friends that first moment back in town. He's, they're like, oh, let's go round up some more Christians. He's like, I don't do that anymore, right? <laughs> That's not my way anymore. I'm about bringing us together now. What? You can't be our friend anymore. Or they wanted to kill him. And on several occasions, Paul there were assassination attempts against Paul. And then you can read in, in the epistles this extremely long list of Things that Paul had to endure, like beatings and being left for dead, and being shipwrecked, and um, you know having a flat tire in his chariot. Things I'm kidding. I'm trying to get you to. <laughs> he didn't have a chariot. He walked. If you, had, if you had a chariot, you were somebody else in that world. Um, so, what about, what's what's this telling about his suffering? Well, for one, his suffering mirrors. Mirrors the suffering of Christ somewhat. Uh, there was a hearing that began, once he got to Rome, there was, was a first hearing. It's like an evidentiary hearing. It was just to see if there was enough charges against someone to keep them in prison for a later date at trial. That's how the Roman court system worked. He says here, none of my friends came to my defense at that evidentiary Hearing. And so, without their support, he was put in prison. Maybe if somebody had shown up and spoken a word for him, he could have been somewhere else, okay? And there was a long wait. And that kind of reminds us of how the disciples abandoned Jesus, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane. Jesus had to face all his accusers alone, too. So this, there's not complete parallels, obviously, between Jesus and Paul, but it shows that the, the pattern of Paul's suffering is not that different from the pattern of Jesus' suffering. And Jesus had always said, I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer on account of my name. And that's something that's completely true. I want to tell you a little bit about Roman prisoner, prisons, because I mentioned that earlier on, is that even if you didn't pass your evidentiary trial and you were bound over to be in prison, there kind of wasn't a guarantee that you'd make it to the next trial because being sent to prison was almost like a death sentence in itself. These prisons were so unsanitary, so unsafe. Uh, Gangrene, all sorts of diseases were running rampant in there. Your ability to eat, your ability to take care of your basic needs was minimal. Jails were different back then. They didn't really have bars as much as they had chains because chains are cheaper than bars. Building materials back then weren't strong. They were made out of brick, mud brick. A determined prisoner could kind of dig his way out with a spoon or you know whatever they used to eat back then. I guess it was a spoon. Uh, and so instead, you have really heavy chains that basically immobilized you and you would just be stuck there, and it was, bad. it was bad for your musculature, it was bad for your body, it was bad for your health, you were in a cramped space. You can imagine, shorter chains are cheaper than longer chains, and all the prisons want to save money, it seems, even these prisons. And so you're stuck with these heavy chains on your arms and legs, you're hoping that your friends are gonna bring you some food. There was no guarantee that you could eat free, there's no mess hall, You know, it's, it's just you wouldn't make it out. And so, if you look at verse 6, and now we're going to the beginning of our passage, his suffering was so intense at this point that he was wondering if he would get out at all. If he was going to make it to his next trial. And he says, my life is being poured out, right? And that's really a powerful metaphor. That word, that verb for being poured out is the same verb that's used to describe a drink offering that's poured out onto the altar and sacrificed. It's something that just, it goes out, and then the cup is empty. And it's apt because, yes, his life is being poured out, but yet his life is also this beautiful sacrifice to God. And so his command of the language is still so powerful. Even in prison, it's really moving. This moment that he's in, my life is ending, my friends have deserted me, I am being poured out like an offering on the altar. I'm weak, I'm sick, I'm alone. But yet, let's go to the next thing. I want to pull this all together. The, the, the two things that happen next is God's faithfulness and our response to that faithfulness. And I want to stress how faithful God is to Paul in this particular situation and the first way is that in this whole process of going to court going to jail these are people that are now able to hear the gospel his jailers the people in the courts the judges the court reporters or whoever else are in the court Um, and so and the accusation against him was that he was spreading the gospel or causing a riot because he spread the gospel and so He's allowed to give a defense of himself, and that defense of himself would have to then be the gospel. So he gets this opportunity to preach the gospel to more and more influential people as he goes along, because he appeals all the way to the highest authority. He appeals to the emperor himself in the hopes that he was going to be able to witness to Emperor Nero himself. Probably didn't happen, or if it did happen, it didn't take from what we know of Nero. That's so, it. All right. So, and so Paul's stay in prison in Rome was one of the beginnings of the Christianization of Rome, the city. There's other strands that lead to this. There were many Jewish people living in diaspora from Israel that had been. Forcibly relocated to Rome. This is part of the history. It's very interesting. They were probably very receptive to the gospel there. They were because they got that cultural thing, the, the linguistic thing. But before long, and it took a few centuries, no doubt, Rome itself had been Christianized. And since Rome was really the preeminent power in the Mediterranean at that time, it meant then from there on out a huge increase in the ability for the Christian faith to be spread throughout. The entire world I'm not saying this is without problems because uh, when Christ- Rome was Christianized that led to all sorts of other issues that the church had to deal with and, and is still dealing with too but nonetheless this was the strategy Paul wanted to go to Rome so that he could witness to the highest levels of the Roman culture and society and I would say he succeeded in time praise God so God is faithful Even in this difficulty, God is faithful to him. The other thing I want to point out about God's faithfulness in this is this is from Paul himself. If you look at verses 17 and 18, when everything else is taken away from him, his friends and his freedom and his health, God shows up powerfully. What does it say? The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. The Lord will save me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. This is somebody writing a letter about their own death. They're at the end of their rope. Their life is being poured out. But they have this deep sense of God's presence with them, even though friends have deserted. This is amazing. This is really good stuff, right? This is really great. Paul can experience this closeness with God when everything else really is going wrong. And God continues to use Paul, even in this decrepit situation, and even despite him being the chief of sinners as we talked about, because his usefulness to God doesn't depend on his sinlessness. It depends on his availability, right? His saying yes, and knowing how much he would suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. So, what what can we do to respond to this? And here I want maybe to speak into your heart just a little bit, especially if you're looking at yourself and wondering why you keep sinning. And I I hope you wonder that sometimes. You know, we need to to wonder that. We need to examine ourselves. Um, And it's this. We cannot let our sin drive us from God's presence. Don't let your sin drive you out of God's presence. Instead, we confess and we repent. We can find a brother or sister to share our burdens with, and we embrace the reality of who we are as broken people, and then we become available to God, and God will do great things through us. When we are the weakest, he is the strongest. That's when he's the strongest. Yes, you're a sinner, but the crown waits for you too. That crown of righteousness is waiting. For you, despite your sin. Yes, repent. Yes, turn away. Yes, find ways to avoid it. Find a brother or sister to be accountable with, but don't let your sin drive you from the presence of God. Paul felt God's presence very powerfully in the deepest and darkest hours. So that's the first thing. That's one response. The other is this is that. Just like Paul was uniquely equipped to bring together the Jews and the Gentiles in the other church because of who he was, because of how he was raised, because of the gifts that he had been given, I would say that there's some gift that you have that makes you uniquely suited to bridge a gap in this world. And it might be on a smaller scale than Paul, and I think we need to learn to be okay with that, right? Because we can't all be Paul, right? But we can be faithful like Paul and we may have to suffer like Paul. You have some gift, you have some ability and, and there's some person in this world for whom that gift and ability will create a bridge between them and God. Okay, I'm going to say that again because that sounds a little complex but it's really not that hard. You have some gift. It's some, something you can do. Something that's in you some ability God gave you, or some way of seeing the world. And there's somebody out there in this world, and maybe you've met them, or maybe you haven't met them yet. And that gift that you have is going to enable that person to make a connection with God. It's that simple. God has a purpose for giving you these gifts, and one of them is to spread the gospel. The other is to glorify him, all right, and to do great things for him. So, Um, This is homework, but I would like sometimes I give weekly homework, but this is like lifetime homework. This is your lifetime homework, not just for the week. You have a gift. Discern that gift, and then discern the person for whom that gift is designed to connect to God. We have a treasure in jars of clay, but we have to let that treasure out. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And You know, this is in line with our ongoing emphasis on vocation. We understand our purpose in light of our gifts, where we work, where God has put us, and whom God has put us in the midst of. So finally, the last application for this. And this is for any of us who are hitting difficult times, okay? Do you have health problems? Paul had health problems, right? Do you have health problems? (laughs) For the last two weeks, this may sound like a small thing, but for the last two weeks, my knee has been very painful. It's gotten better, thank goodness. My wife is smart. She told me what to do. It's good. Um, It was like tendonitis, but worse than I've ever had. It was very hard to walk. My kids keep jumping on me, and then they say, is that your bad leg or not? (laughs) No, it's my, So then they only jump on the good leg, I guess. They jump all over me. Um, And that's just... That's the smallest thing. I mean, your knee, come on. But I I felt it, right? When something's not right, you feel it. It kind of changes the, the complexion of life. And so I can only imagine that a big, big health problem would have big, big ramifications on how I'm experiencing and enjoying life. But do you have health problems? Are you nearing the end of life? We all are, just some further than others. Or do you feel friendless and abandoned? There's so many people in scripture that can share those experiences, but at the same time they found God powerfully present. They found God powerfully present in the midst of those dark times. So that's what I'm gonna pray right now is that you feel what Paul felt. The Lord is by your side. The Lord will rescue you and bring you safely into his embrace. And to do all that, I'm going to read this just one more time and then we'll be done. I'm going to read the scripture again. And I wanted to sink in for you that this is a goodbye letter for somebody who's been faithful, suffered a lot, and yet is confident in what God is going to do for him. Let's read it again. Verse 6. Paul writes, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.